Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Before wine, my first real love was clothing. The school I attended for middle and high school had a dress code, so collared shirts were required, denim was restricted, and suits were worn on Mondays. I started reading GQ in hopes of navigating the binaries of menswear. Button-down or spread collars, peak or notch lapels, single or side vents. Eventually, I began to develop my own sense of style, finding vintage Ralph Lauren and really colorful chinos that pushed the boundaries of the school dress code. I actually wrote one of my college essays about getting sent to the middle school principal's office for breaking my school's monochromatic mandates. Fast forward to when I graduated from college, I became the dining room manager of a venerable restaurant group, and I was 22 years old dealing with patrons who were two to three times my age, and it was challenging. It was really tough. I mean, you try and cut someone off or deal with a rowdy table, and When I was young, I found that if I dressed impeccably, it gave me the confidence I needed. You know, I didn't have the budget for really high-end garments, but I always made sure that my suits were perfectly tailored. The ideation of garments and the concept of classic menswear is what prompted my conversation with Lyle Railsbeck. Lyle is the national portfolio manager for Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant. Like me, Lyle works full-time in wine, but he has a love of good quality garments. Through his work-related travel to France and Italy, he's developed meaningful relationships with European clothiers. This week, I wanted to talk to Lyle about the similarities between bespoke garments and small production wine. Both of these are industries defined by centuries of tradition that face challenges with mass production and homogenization. We ended up chatting just as he returned to Manhattan. Senor, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. But you're back in New York City now? Yeah, we had to come back. Victoria is working at Coat. They were doing to-goes, right, for a while? They are still. They took a week off to give all the staff a chance to recharge. It's pretty crazy. It's like 14-hour days of peeling peeling potatoes and doing food prep and then making all the drinks to go and then doing service, which is just, you know, wrangling bike messengers. And it's not... Yeah, it's, it's not uh, a business that was built with to-goes in mind. No. But they're they're happy that they can stay, stay open and stay you know bring people food and still bring joy and so they're they're crushing it and pretty busy. That's awesome. It looked like you had an amazing quarantine setup out there in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Were you upstate? Were you in <laughs> yep. the Hudson Valley? Where were you? We we're lucky to have a, a good friend who has a cabin up in Willow, New York, just outside of Woodstock. Okay. So it's like two hour drive up there. It's uh, really peaceful and quiet and you forget about coronavirus because <laughs> yeah. we're a nice cabin with Wi-Fi access and, you know, so just, just working remotely. And a sauna. And that a wood-fired cool. sauna. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I'm super excited to talk to you. You've always, to me, had an impeccable sense of style. And I've always been very interested with kind of the intersection of fashion and wine. I think that there are a lot of similarities, especially when we're talking about the fine wines of Europe, the wines that you work with from Italy and France. I think that there's this really interesting relationship that both of those things have with the culture. And you seem to kind of synthesize those two things really well, the way in which your travels have influenced your sense of style. And so that's kind of what I wanted to chat about today. Yeah, it's awesome. I I like the idea. And I've always seen similarities too. So when 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 you brought that up in the email, like, hey, let's talk about how these kind of intersect. I think that's super awesome. And yeah. How's the, how's the wine stuff coming along? 
how's everything with Kermit? Everything with Kermit's good. We're, I mean, our business is down tremendously, but it's also, we haven't had to lay anyone off and we're, we're trying to, you know, we're paying suppliers on time and trying to take as much of a commitment as we can on things. Uh, so it's, how are the producers? Yeah. Are all your producers in Italy and France doing okay? Uh, it's a, yeah, as far as health and the coronavirus, yes. As, as far as, uh, sales and this like hiccup in business, you know, I, th I think the coronavirus has not helped that, but really for most people, I would say, and for our business overall, the tariffs are still affecting us way more than the coronavirus being, you know, so yeah. That was something that was a really big deal within our industry. I don't know how much of that bled out into the average wine drinkers, you know, understanding of things, but it was a huge deal when that talk of a hundred percent tariff going into effect was initially discussed. Yeah. It was being threatened, uh, while we were in France on our annual buying trip in January. Oh, and uh, I'll never forget the moment when we, when Macron tweeted that he had met with Trump and that they're not, they're gonna you know, delay and not do any increase in tariffs until further notice. And we were having dinner in Saint-Emilion. We were with Hervé Dubourdieu from Graville Lacoste and Rumio Lacoste and uh, other Bordeaux producers. and. In the middle of dinner, uh, Matthew Masters, who runs our distributor in Nashville, Tennessee, stands up and shouts out that this tweet had happened. And it was a very joyous occasion. There was lots of lots of drinking to follow. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great that you were there when it happened. Um, it was weird. That, yeah. But but to be fair, we should say that there's still a tariff in effect, right? We're That's, still dealing with 25% yeah. tariffs on a lot of French wines. Yeah. And it's, you know... The real, the thing that makes it really challenging is that most of our clients are small mom and pop distributors for the most part. And it's not just the fact that the wines would be, you know, 20% more expensive. The real issue is that as a small family business owner, they would have to pay a tariff before the wine arrives to them. So we have credit terms from our suppliers, we offer credit terms to all of our clients. So if you're a small distributor, you can take wine and you can pay for it 60, 70 days later, et cetera. Uh, but if you have to pay upfront in advance uh, a government tariff of 25% cash out of your pocket, uh, it's just really, really hard. A lot of smaller guys don't know how to even go about that. Yeah. And we, we should probably clarify for some listeners, because I think that the the method of distribution and supplying, importing, isn't always clear to people coming into wine bars or buying wine at a grocery store. You know, I occasionally get asked by my friends that don't work in the industry, like, oh, so you just go to France and like pick out wines you like and then sell them back at your bar, um, which it would be great if that was how it was set up. It'd be way more convoluted and probably confusing for, for everyone involved. But um, the role of the importer is to source out those really fantastic producers, kind of sift through the product in Europe, develop meaningful relationships with winemakers, bring those to the United States, then sell them to distributors who will then sell the wine to a restaurant or grocery store or wine shop to get to a consumer. There, there's many layers before it gets there. Yeah. There are many layers. Uh, however, working for Kermit Lynch, it's quite unique in the fact that we are a retail store. Uh, that's how Kermit started with a small shop in Berkeley, California back in the seventies, which we still have. That's a big part of our business. We 
then we also do our own distribution in, in the state of California. So Kermit is the wholesaler in California. And then for the rest of the country, we work through small, we work through distributors in all 50 states. So uh, yeah, that's, that's how things are done. And that's, yeah. <laughs> so Kermit, we should say for listeners is one of the OGs, one of the most widely respected importers of fine wine from Europe. Kermit, you know, is like the godfather, the grandfather, you know, the dad to all of these other importers that we're seeing out there these days. He really rewrote the rules. Um, and I can't belabor that point enough, but it's something I'm reminded by, reminded of every day. It's just, you know, Kermit had a small shop. He bought wine through existing distributors, as you would do. And he decided one day, you know, he was just going to go to France and and find his own wines and bring them in and sort of break all the rules and discover these off the beaten path country wines, things like Cote Roti and Bandol. And, uh, you know, no one was bringing wines like that into America back in the early 70s. So um, <laughs> there's been a lot of things that are he kind of changed the changed the game on, um, and he started talking with passion and writing his newsletter, and then eventually a, a book called Adventures on the Wine Route, which was one of the first like important wine books I read when I was getting into wine, just like college days. And I think that yeah, Kermit's approach has been super different. It's kind of this hippie generation of you know we don't have to listen to the status quo and just buy what's put in front of us. The tastes of the wine business at that time were really driven a lot by the British market, which was a big fan of Bordeaux, a big fan of Burgundy and Champagne. And the rest of France was just kind of simple country wine that you wouldn't drink unless you were there kind of thing. Uh, Kermit uh, says the first vineyard he ever saw was Les Marchais. He took a train to Burgundy, he gets off the train, he goes to uh, to Pouligny and Marceau and he and Chasson and he sees this Les Marchais vineyard and he said, I got a quick idea that uh, you know, if you want value, you have to look where no one else is looking and not at the most famous vineyards. And it's the same thing with, you know, first growth Bordeaux back then, you know, in the sixties and seventies, you could, you and I could afford to drink first growth Bordeaux, maybe not on a daily basis, but we could go out there and drink whatever we wanted to. And that's, that's kind of changed now. And it's starting to change with other places too, especially in Burgundy. So uh, he discovered places like, you know, Jean-Louis Chauve in Hermitage, his grandfather got more money for his apricot crop than he got for his Syrah grapes. And that's you know, bonkers. A lot has changed. And even when I started for Kermit in 08, we used to have a producer that Kermit discovered in Cornas called Noel Verse, one of the great old producers of Cornas. Uh, doesn't exist anymore, but we were selling uh, Verse's last vintage, the 06 vintage. And it was, I want to say $40 a bottle. And we were begging people begging people to buy it. We had like 25 cases to sell and everyone, distributors would tell us, oh, you don't understand. Cornas is expensive. This is a hard sell. I can, you know, Chateauneuf de Pop so much easier to sell. And now a bottle of Versailles, you can't find one. And if you do, it's on auction for a for thousand dollars a bottle. It's just, it's crazy. It's funny. You mentioned that you read Kermit's book when you were in college and you went to university for fine arts, right? And did you go immediately into restaurants or how did you kind of work your way into wine? Uh, I, well, I worked throughout high school just to pay the bills. I, uh, like wash dishes and worked in a kitchen. And then I started waiting tables and busing and 
kind of doing everything. I really wanted to cook. I, I like, I was thinking about going to cooking school and I worked with someone who had worked at Spago with Wolfgang Puck. And he told me, don't go to cooking school. Just like go cook, go, just go do it. It's a job. It's a craft. You know, you don't need to, you don't, you don't need to pay someone to go to school for that. Just, just go learn and do it. And so I was really into cooking and was working at different kitchens, came back from a trip to Europe in the Willamette Valley. There was this posting for a line cook. I applied and they said, we've, we've filled the position, but we need a sommelier to which I replied, well, I'm 20. I can't legally drink. And I, I don't really know anything about wine other than the fact that I was just in Europe and I really like it. And I think it's cool. And the owner who was really sweet uh, and I learned a lot from, he, he said, don't worry. Uh, you'll learn. So he hired me as a sommelier at age 20. Uh, it was a list of 100 different Oregon Pinot Noirs and then one page of German Riesling. His wife is German, and so there was that. Um, but winemakers would come in and they would bring great Burgundies. I remember tasting Coastery Corton Charlemagne from 1990 when I was working one night and just wow. being blown away that Chardonnay could do that and uh, tasting some early Lala wines from Gigal from the 80s, you know, uh, just kind of getting my mind blown every day by, by wine like that. And so the wine thing kind of took more of my interest. And uh, then after, after graduating college, you know, an art degree really qualifies you to wait tables. So I continued waiting tables and I started doing wine lists. I became a sommelier and a wine buyer. I worked in a retail store briefly, got to know Bruce Nyers, um, moved to D Washington DC for a girl and didn't want to work in restaurants for a bit. So Bruce hooked me up with Winebow, who was the distributor for Kermit in DC. And so I did that for a year and a half, figured out that I like I could sell wine and I liked it. And then I moved back to Portland, Oregon, and then Bruce created a job for me at Kermit. And I've been here ever since. Wow. And yeah. when did you when did you really start to figure out not just this love for wine that you had, but also your kind of personal style? Uh, well, when we were kids growing up, we had to like go to the thrift store because we couldn't afford to buy new jeans. We had to buy like old ratty jeans. And, uh, I remember having like a Kermit the Frog t-shirt that I would wear in high school. I had absolutely zero style. And I think I got a, there was a lot of a backlash towards sort of, you know, me not being presentable. So I, I don't know. I, I found clothing interesting. Um, I sort of, I like suits um even when there's not the occasion to wear one i just i love the whole ritual behind the thing and i guess i've always liked clothing but only recently have i sort of dabbled in like working with an artisan to have something made specifically for you that's that's only in the last three or four years have i done that and it's really changed my perspective on things well what about your first suit that you really got that you were excited to get where it wasn't just like you went to a thrift store because you needed a suit for something. Um, but like, can you think back to like a really pivotal moment in that experience with suits? In high school, I would like, we, we, we went to high school in Kansas and we would drive a, an hour to Wichita, Kansas. And I found this men's clothing store that would have sale. I don't think they could sell. They didn't have any customers for Armani suits back in <laughs> And at this time in, in Wichita, so they would like have a sale and sell the, sell the product for like 75% off. And so I would go and like scrounge and find these like Armani suits. And like the first one I bought was this like sort of darker seafoam green seer, seersucker Armani suit. And like back then it was like big shoulder pads, kind of baggy. You know, the yeah. pan, the, it was 
I mean, to, today to look at it, I would be extremely embarrassed, but at the time I, <laughs> I thought I was fantastic. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah. No, I, I also just got to a point where I, I started wearing suits and blazers for work and I guess finding problems with them and just being like, I like this, but it's not this, right? It's not what I envision it being. And, and eventually getting to the point where it's someone sort of told me, why don't you just like get something made? And it sounded like a cr crazy extravagance because, you know, it's not, it's not cheap to have something made for you. But what I've learned over this process, and I've made a ton of mistakes along the way. I've, I've, I've wasted a lot of money on stuff I would never do again. So if, I think I could, you know, tell people ways to do it and that they lost less, mon less money. But uh, I learned a lot of lessons. And I think that by investing in something made by a tailor by hand, it costs more money up front, but it actually costs less money over the course of time. A, a handmade suit from somebody can last you your entire life. They leave extra cloth in the margins so they can be let out or brought in. And, uh, and it's just made to a higher level of, you know, fully canvassed, completely done by hand, that kind of, those kind of suits that can last you for 50, 60 years. No, for sure. You mentioned in there that you kind of learned a lot through mistakes. And I think that's true working in restaurants too. We learn by, you know, a time we fucked up at a table, we mm -hmm. said something wrong. But can you think back to any of those like learning experiences that you had that really kind of stuck with you over all these years? Yeah. I mean, I think just to, as a brief aside, when I first got into wine, I remember like reading the Wine Spectator and other magazines and they they give wine this numerical score to say this is this got 91 points, this one got 92 points, and this sort of blind tasting mentality, and all wines are equal on this, you know, laboratory board in front of you. And the second I learned, I guess, really from Kermit, is that like when wine doesn't exist that way, and it's the same with clothing. If you find a good tailor that you can trust, you know, that's way more important. Finding finding a wine merchant you can trust, finding a tailor you can trust, finding a shoemaker. Uh, rather than just, you know, looking online or whatever. I think it's it's worth doing, spending your time doing investigating and, and reading up, you know, what you like, some of the best people to do it. And then I think word of mouth is the best just for anything. There's so much information today, but I, I feel like even for wine, uh, you get a different experience if I talk to you face-to-face -face versus if I send you an email and say, what wine should I try right now? I think talk, talking about these things in person, and uh, I've learned a lot through really cool people I've met who've also had lots of disasters along the way, and have said, "Oh no, don't don't do this guy. Go to this guy and do this." And yeah, it's so funny. That's almost always the advice I give someone when they want to learn more about wine. Like, what should I do if I want to learn more? I'm like, go to a wine shop that you like and trust, or if there's a wine bar that you really like, you know, talk to the person that works there. Let them kind of work with you to find your taste. So being comfortable and confident with your own kind of sense of subjectivity uh, goes a really long way. Something that you mentioned was the amount of travel that you have to do. I mean, I see you in Texas at least two, if not three or four times a year. And when it comes to packing for traveling, I'm curious for you, what clothing do you find to be the most versatile for those trips? The, the sort of silver lining with this uh, pandemic is that I'm not traveling right now, but Normally, I travel about 75% of the time, and I do take a trip where I'm in, you know, one day I'm in Texas, the next day I'm in Colorado, the next two days later, I could be in Montana. And in Texas, it was 90 degrees, but in Montana, there's snow on the ground. So it's that's the hardest, is like packing for different climates, and you have to have like one suitcase and a small bag, and you've got to have like, I, I think just layers is good. 
so you can have you know rather than like a huge puffy coat instead of instead of having a few layers and then uh i think like the classic blue blazer you know the classics are classic for a reason and uh my, i think the whole suit obsession for me started with like trying to find the perfect blue blazer and then realizing it didn't exist you have to have someone create it for you and even then uh it may take four or five till you get to the right one but uh no i think that like you can wear that with jeans and then you can you know mix it and match it with something else i think uh having sort of versatile outfits like that uh, and it's challenging too right because in addition to visiting all these different places with different climates you know you're also dealing with different settings you might be doing a five course wine pairing dinner uh when you're in montana and then when you're in houston doing a very casual event for consumers so so finding something that works for everything in that Blue Blazer is a great example of something that's like versatile that works for all occasions. Yeah, I'm really into flannel right now. Uh, there's a there's a producer who invented flannel called Fox Flannel, uh, and they're in the west of England. Uh, they do things with these old looms that go twice as slow as everybody else's looms, and this the fabric. You know, flannel it sounds you know like a dress fabric, but it was originally created as a sports fabric, and it breathes extremely well. So it's something that you can wear to the boardroom meeting in front of a distributor. And you can also wear it when you're running around town in the heat, carrying a bag of wine. I've always struggled with flannel because it's something that I want to wear more of, but here in Texas, it's, it's challenging <laughs> to, yeah. you know, get a, get a flannel jacket or a flannel suit that, that, that works. Um, I find myself wearing a lot of just really lightweight wool you know, more than anything else. And I've never been a big fan of linen personally, just because, you know, it wrinkles so easily. So that's always been my biggest challenge. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny, I was also thinking about versatility in relation to wine, because we've all been in that position where you're not sure what bottle to bring or crack open. And something that I think Kermit excels at is importing a wide range of wines in styles that work for lots of different occasions. I mean, if we want to focus on just one region, I think Beaujolais is a great example. You've got quaffable benchmarks like Domaine du Puebla, and then you've got more structured examples like Foyard's Cote de But if we were talking about like the blue blazer of grapes or something that can universally bridge the gap of formality, I'd have to go with Gamay. Mm. Beaujolais is certainly the wine for all seasons. That's <laughs> the wine for all seasons. <laughs> it's very true. Are, are there other wines that you find to be to have that kind of versatility within the portfolio that you're really excited about? I mean, I go through waves of things, and it's all what I've really gotten into is just the regionality of it all. So we work with 220 different small farmers at Kermit Lynch and they're all amazing. So trying to pick your favorite is like a, an endless thing that just you'll, you'll never win. But yeah. for me, like I'll go through periods where uh, for the last two months, I've been on this huge kick of just wanting to drink Tuscan reds. And for some reason I'm like my heart and my head are stuck there. And so we're cooking lots of Tuscan dishes and then if you're making a dish from Liguria with fresh pesto, you think about the wines from Punta Crena, from Liguria and salty Vermentino. And uh, yeah, there's there, there's a, a woman named Meredith Erickson who has this amazing book on Alpine cooking. And so you have wines from the Val d'Osta or from Switzerland with things that she's got there. It's yeah, there's it's a way to travel without having to get to, without having to get on an airplane. What's the what's the last thing you cooked from that cookbook? Uh, from her cookbook, it was uh, a pretty simple pasta dish, like pakari with like uh, red sauce. And then, hmm. yeah. Something I've been asking everyone when we do these uh, recordings is ask them the most recent thing that they drank or what they're drinking right now. Well, we uh, we were doing some Negroni spagliatos. Uh, we 
found a 180 year old distillery in Torino. I don't know if you know the Berto. I don't uh, know. It's they, he's, he's a guy who makes incredible vermouth. He's got his own farm up on the Swiss border where he grows his own botanicals. And then he does nine month infusions to make like really old school artisanal vermouth. Uh, it's almost like a vermouth for Amaro lovers, kind of like Barolo Chinato almost. Uh, so he does that. He does a red bitter that's kind of Campari-like. He makes really, really good gin. So we've been doing Negronis and then to lighten it up and not be drinking too much, we've been uh, doing sparkling wine with it. And we have a, a producer in Savoie in the appellation of Seysel, which is at the mouth of where the Rhone River starts up in Switzerland. And mm -hmm. as it's going down into Savoie, there's this little tiny place called Seysel and there's only one producer left in the entire appellation called the it's Gerard Lambert is the family. And they make this really cool sparkling from Altesse and Molette, which are grapes that I'd never heard of. Uh, but the wine's super delicious. It's like really cheap. And we were doing that in our uh, Negroni Spagliatas. And it was- uh, That sounds great. Yeah. And then a special question for you. I've been asking everyone what they've been drinking or what they're drinking right now. I got to get a fit check. Like what 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 are you wearing right now in quarantine? What's What's the outfit that you're currently rocking? White Oxford cloth button down. All right. Don't mess with a classic. Let, let's do top to bottom because those are those uh, glasses that you got last year, right? Yeah, Maison Bonnet, uh, yeah. super amazing bespoke glass maker in Paris. They're, uh, yeah, they were an investment. Uh, and then Oxford cloth, white Oxford cloth button down, just so, super classic. And uh, yeah, black, black jeans. Black jeans. Black no jeans. sweatpants <laughs> right now. You're not, not rocking the sweats. I don't. I have a pair of sweatpants. I don't wear them yeah. uh, much. I, yeah. I've been wearing a lot of shorts um, just because it's already getting really hot here in Houston. So um, yeah. that, that's the compromise that I'm making for, for comfort right now is, is, is shorts over pants. My favorite move is, the, is shorts. I got some uh, corduroy shorts from Drake's that are super awesome, yeah. uh, kind of high-waisted high shorts, and wearing those with tall rubber boots. And yeah, then, uh, some wellies, some hunter some wellies, boots. some hunter yeah. wellies. Yeah, yeah. That's the uh, that's my quarantine go to move. Quarantine go to. I love it. So something that you mentioned is that when Kermit started importing, global wine preferences were defined by the British palate. And I mean, historically, we can attribute most of the wines of Europe being made to British taste. You know, port, sherry, champagne, Bordeaux. Those are the ones that like immediately come to mind. And you could argue that Britain had a similar hegemony over menswear. I mean, tailoring has a long and storied history in Britain. London was the focal point of a lot of sartorial decisions. I mean, look, I'm not a historian, but I feel like yeah, I feel like there's a parallel there. Yeah, the British influence over art, over music, um, the British invasion over fashion, and certainly the wine market. And I think when Kermit got into the wine market in the early 70s, we were living in a world where it was kind of the status quo was telling people what they had to drink and what they had to buy in any field. And you've got younger, the hippie generation coming in and saying, you know, we don't need black suits and skinny black ties. We need tie dye. We need bell bottoms. And I think Kermit did that for the wine business. I think he came in and said, we don't just need Bordeaux. We don't need Burgundy and Champagne. We do need those things, but we also need Bandol and we need Cote Roti and we need Savoie and we need the Loire Valley and all these things that that nobody in America had heard of at the time. I think it's a revolution. And Kermit was at this this beginning of the wine revolution and he wrote it and he he crafted that wine revolution in America more than anybody. He won a, a medal of honor from the French government 
for his work promoting wines. And, the, and when they gave it to him, people were writing articles saying that during the early 70s, it was this British influence on wine tastes. And this, this young, hippie, cool guy from Berkeley was writing and talking and, you know, being very uh, descriptive about the wines of Provence as if they were the grand van of France. And, and they, they are, but they just, they had kind of been shafted. Maybe we can break down your Italian and British tailoring just a little bit. Um, for starters, uh, you got your wedding suit in London, yeah? I feel like that's your holy grail. You want to talk about the inspiration behind it? Yeah, there's that famous picture of Mick Jagger and Bianca, and they're in the, in the back of the car, and they're opening a bottle of champagne in the car, and they both have on their wedding suits, and they both wore the same wedding outfit. It was this white or off-white suit with these big 70s lapels, big collar shirt, uh, and those suits were made by... Uh, Joe Morgan, who's now part of Chittleborough and Morgan. It used to be, he worked for Tommy Nutter on Savile Row. And those, they made suits for the Beatles, the same suits that are on the cover of Abbey Road. It's the same guy. Oh, wow. he's, the same guy who was cutting back then is now has his own shop in Savile Row. And so it was an extravagant thing, but just like having a wedding dress, it's like, I'm going to have this really amazing tuxedo that I'll have the rest of my life. And Hell yeah. it, it took over a year to have it made and it was fun. All right. So we chatted a little bit about British tailoring, but Another big influence for you is Italy, and it would be impossible for us to talk about, you know, the menswear of Naples and Milan without discussing sprezzatura or this idea of like a nonchalant casualness. I, I just think it would be really hard for us to talk about, you know, the impact of sprezzatura, this movement away from maybe the more formal and structured tailoring of England without talking about the current world of wine. I mean, do you see a parallel there? I don't know. Whether it's flannel producers in the west of England or, or Domaine de Puebla in Beaujolais, like uh, uh, there's some there's some similarities there. But I think that the nonchalance thing is is fascinating because, you know, there's a distinction between like fashion and dressing up and you know high end clothing versus like looking good and feeling comfortable in your own skin. Well, there's also there's also the idea with sprezzatura of like slight imperfection, right? That, you know, maybe you don't have the buttons on your collar, you know, buttoned, you know, or maybe your tie isn't at the perfect length, you know, that there's a slight imperfection, there's a slight spontaneity to things. And I think you see that in a lot of really exciting wines. You know, you can talk about, you know, Britannomyces, right? What was considered a reasonable level of Brett 20 years ago is very different than what's a reasonable amount of Brett now. I mean, there's a certain level of subjectivity there. I mean, the idea that, you know, you can be comfortable and confident, you know, expressing a wine with a certain level of rusticity that maybe previously would have been considered like unpolished and therefore faulty, right? Bo Brummel was the first to do this. Bo Brummel insisted on this idea of nonchalance and tying his tie in a way that looked like it was haphazard and thrown together. And there are, are artifacts to support this evidence that he would spend hours tying his tie in a nonchalant way. So, uh, you know, where do you take that? It's like, okay, yeah, you're trying to be nonchalant and act like you've just thrown it off, uh, off your shoulder. And I, but I think that's, it's very true with like uh, Italian style. You know, you look at guys now in Italy who are just, they're doing it and they're, they're taking you know, beautifully tailored pieces of clothing and the finest things, you know, a man could make. And they, they, they pull it off in a way and they, 
they wear it without socks or they do it with without a tie and they make it in a way that you know you what i like is being able to wear a, a tailored suit that is someone spent 70 hours making it's a beautiful work of art that hopefully i'll, I'll have the rest of my life and you wear that with a t-shirt or you wear that with with you know you mix it with something that's not so stuffy and and you know, when you show up at a place and you're wearing like a suit and tie and people think, oh, who's this asshole? Like, uh, hey, I want to kind of get away from this idea that you're, you know, somebody too precious because none of us are precious. And I think we've seen that in wine too, right? I mean, this idea of taking some of the preciousness out of things, right? I, I think one of the most impactful things to me when I first went to France with Kermit, well, with Bruce on the Kermit trip in 2009, my first trip to France to visit wineries, uh, you know, we visit... Alsace, we visit Burgundy, we're tasting from a pipette, you know, very serious uh, out of the barrel in Burgundy. It's no one's laughing. It's, it's you know, this is Echazeau and this is uh, Charme Chambertin. And then you drive an hour south and you're in Beaujolais. And the, the most remarking thing to me was like going to the Beaujolais. It's 10 a.m. and the gang of four is smoke, chain smoking cigarettes drinking Beaujolais. They're not tasting wine. They're drinking wine. And they bring out platters of pork rillette and pork cracklings that are homemade. And it's it's this like Bacchanalian like fest of like, let's celebrate life and like, let's drink and eat and be happy. And these are people and this is love. And, and you learn like, okay, there's there's different ways to this. This wine thing can be so exciting on many different levels. That's not to you know, Burgundy's amazing and, and no one no one has that complexity and that history that Burgundy has. But at the same time, the, the joyfulness and the unpretentiousness of, of Beaujolais is what I see when you when you actually get to know the tailors. Instead of going to a fancy shop in Paris where they're selling suits, you go to the tailor in Napoli, who's, you know, this is Napoli's run by the mafia. It's a really poor place and there's the heroin trade is there and maybe the best pizza in the world. But you go to a tailor's place and it's a it's a family who's been making pants for six generations and you go to their workshop and it's covered with scraps of clothing. And you say, this is like the Beaujolais of the clothing world. These guys are, these guys are the real guys. They're doing it. And it's a labor of love and nobody's getting rich, but they're, they're doing this thing because this is why they live on the planet. Okay. So before I let you go, I just need to get maybe a couple of other quick tips. There are probably people listening that would love to up their fashion game a little bit. What, advice beyond knowing thyself beyond that what things would you give people to up their sartorial game a little bit they should buy this book called scottish estate tweeds Hell yeah. uh, <laughs> it's uh no it's i'm kind of joking it's it's pretty nerdy it's just a whole book about different uh, tweed uh patterns but now i think uh permanentstyle.com was the thing that like really got me deep into it uh, he, he, this, I don't know if you know this guy, Simon Crompton, he's based in the UK. He reviews different tailors and he's like tried everybody around the globe almost. And he reviews them start to finish what he liked, what he didn't like, how they do this, how they do that. And kind of, uh, by researching on his website, I learned a lot of things that helped me sort of get into it a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Other than that, look, look at your heroes, I guess and and uh try to dress like them that's like like who are, who are your biggest heroes your your mount rushmore your your top four uh it's it seems like a revolving door a bit but for me like uh, uh, johnny agnelli 
the you know the leader of fiat when he was in his heyday he was kind of like the king of italy and one of the most influential people for style and and whatever and he's the the documentary that came that came out last year is amazing on him and he's uh, some of the tailors I've gone to a shirt maker in Milan and a couple of suit makers and stuff. They've, they made clothes for him. And it's just, it's really cool to see like how he had a great, idea, what you said about sprezzatura and a, a carefreeness, but at the same time, just super class and a, a gentleman all around. But yeah, I mean, Gary Cooper and Cary Grant was like an early one for me. I remember as a kid watching like Cary Grant movies and being like, wow, that's that's why you want to wear a suit. That's pretty cool. Now, like David Niven is, is a guy who in that same kind of era that just like unrelenting classiness. Um, but I also think that, like, you know, it's like what we said earlier about, about Vigneron and about winemakers. It's the same about people in, in the fashion world or in, in the world of making clothes and like people who I've met and know personally, I almost find more inspirational on the day today even though you would hold Cary Grant as like above your head as this like sort of fashion icon uh people who I know uh Gianluca Migliorati is is a buddy of mine who runs Pomella trouser maker in Napoli he works with Ciro Zizolfi in Napoli he's based in Milan he's a filmmaker that's his trade and where he came from he spent time in New York he's a super cool guy he's a friend of mine I'm lucky to call him a friend He's a guy that's like, that's someone who I look up to and cherish. And he's like friends with Douglas uh, Cordo from Fox Brothers, the flannel producer in the West of England. And like, I think, you know, people who are still alive and are, are uh, you're in touch with are sometimes more, more impactful, even though you may not realize it until later. Well, I very much appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to let people know in their period of quarantine? Uh, try to read as much poetry as you can and cook a lot of dishes you wouldn't normally challenge yourself with uh, and drink good wine because it really makes the day a lot better if you drink a good bottle. You don't have to drink too much of it. Uh, we're trying to pace ourselves in quarantine because a lot of rich food every night and wine every night, it's like, you know, trying to find that balance in life is important. But uh, yeah. I think uh, Victoria had this idea of like, yeah, why not? The, this bottle of whatever we've been holding on to and saving, like, let's just open it. Like, there's no time like the present to drink good wine. I'm on board with that. Perfect. Yes. Well, Lyle, thank you so much. I thank appreciate you, your time. Always a this pleasure. Thank great. you so much. Yeah, cheers. Thank you all very much for listening to me and Lyle geek out. Uh, Lyle can be found on Instagram at Lyle Railsbeck. He's great at tagging in his Instagram posts, so most of the tailors referenced in this episode can be found through his IG. When I'm not editing this podcast, I'm oftentimes listening to podcasts like Corporate Lunch and Throwing Fits, so if you're more sartorially inclined, definitely check those two out. And if you haven't already subscribed to Buy the Glass, you can do so wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating on Apple and help us fight the good fight with those algorithms. And we'll see you next week for another episode. Keep drinking good drinks and keep washing your hands and dress well. Talk soon.